Hello and welcome to the Permaculture Podcast with Scott Mann, a listener-supported program. My guest for this episode is Mark Shepard, owner of New Forest Farm and author of Restoration Agriculture. This is the final piece in a series of three interviews Mark and I recorded to talk about restoration agriculture. You will find links to those first two episodes in the show notes. Today we use four listener questions as the framework for the conversation about restoration agriculture. They are, what is Mark's oil cartel? What place does Keyline Design have on a small-scale site? What techniques does Mark suggest for water retention on a flat area? What tips does Mark have for starting seedlings where you are unable to water daily or weekly? If you enjoy this type of multi-part, longer-format show, including not only these with Mark, but also the Faith and Earth Care series discussing Islam with Ramis Kent, please help to produce more like it by making a contribution to the podcast. October is the beginning of my end-of-year fundraising campaign, in order to get 2015 off to a good start, find out how to make a one-time or ongoing monthly contribution at www.thepermaculturepodcast.com support. Also, before we begin, Jen Mendez at permikids.com has a number of interesting educational opportunities coming up. The first of those are two edge alliances. On Sunday, November 9th, from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern, Jen is joined by Marissa Gates of Permacognition, to explore how to cultivate holistic, positive patterns of the mind. On Wednesday, November 12th, from 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern, Jen is joined by Amelia and Connie to discuss Everything Gardens, Designing Mind-Body Landscapes. In addition to the Edge Alliances, Jen is also offering an educational design course to help educators and families design holistic, integrated education plans useful whether you are homeschooling, unschooling, or want to enrich a child's educational experience when they are not involved in another program or school. You'll find links to the Edge Alliances and the Educational Design course in the show notes. Now then, on to Mark Shepard. I'll join you again afterwards with some final thoughts. Adam Baker asked, what is your oil cartel? Oh, the oil cartel. First of all, in this area, there's a long history uh, in southwest Wisconsin of collaborative ventures. There were tobacco co-ops, there were produce co-ops, pickle co-ops, equipment co-ops. And so in the uh, 80s, when the first wave of tobacco growers were being bought out, the feds were like, you know, they'd you know give you money back for your tobacco allotment. There's all these tobacco growers sitting around wondering what to do. So uh, they got together and they formed the original group of produce growers that eventually became Organic Valley. Well, as Organic Valley has grown within this, this Uber co-op, all these different sub-co-ops within it arise, including the Farmer Renewable Energy Program. And one of the powerful things of, of sticking together with other people is now that you have a number of you, you represent a larger market. And so as this group of growers who are interested in renewable energies, we could all buy bulk order of solar panels, wind turbines, that sort of thing, and get uh, discount rates on all these different renewable technologies because as a group, we all collaboratively together ordered one big order. We had the actual technicians from the company help us install our wind turbines and, and, and all that kind of stuff. Well, then on the oil cartel part of it is as a group, we uh, invest in you, everybody ponies up some cash. You buy a trailer, an oil press, filters, and that kind of thing, and SAC drives it around to people's farms. And when you harvest your oil crop, whether it's camelina, canola, sunflowers, you know, whatever the oil crop is, you just pull your combine over, you spit it into the trailer, and Zach presses it into oil. 
Well, then Jake is another one of the guys in the gang. He drives up alongside, and if you want to get rid of your oil, he'll take the oil away and he'll dewater it. Sometimes he'll sell it to some who who cares who he sells it to. And then he dewaters it, he filters it, and then we'll sell it back to you. So every step along the way, it's a profitable venture from all of us farmers. We have our crop. I put my crop into this wagon that I'm a part owner of. As this wagon's business makes more money and its value increases, my equity stake in that little oil cartel increases. Well, plus I get the actual use value out of the oil. It only takes three acres of sunflowers, if I was growing sunflowers, to uh, power this whole farm, all the fuel we need. Well, then the press cake from those seeds goes to feed the livestock. And this has been going on for at least seven years, I think, within Organic Valley. And there are growers within the program that they can power, uh, dairy farmers can power their whole entire farm on about 10% of their land. They put 10% of their land in oil crop. They get enough oil to run their tractors and their, their delivery trucks. And the press cake is all high-protein feed that goes to your animals. And there's a couple guys that sell their oil as culinary oil. Some sell to potato chip companies. And then Jake goes around two different potato chip companies and, and grabs the oil back, you know, filters it, dewaters it, and sells it back to us. I'm usually getting the second-hand oil after it's already come back from it's being used to make some sort of food product. So what's happening is we're not doing the permaculture bit point thinking and, oh, go down to your local, you know, greasy spoon and, and get their oil when they dump it out. That's like five gallons of oil once a week. That's not a, a fuel system. Whereas we've set up a fuel system in that we produce enough oilseed crops to produce enough fuel for us, enough feed for our livestock, enough fuel to actually sell some at a profit. So this is an actually a profitable fuel system. When we all converted to vegetable oil, because we were a group and not just an individual, we brought the technician over from Germany. And we all spent a week down at the Organic Valley shop. The whole inter uh, internal fleet at Organic Valley, it delivers eggs from place to place, the shuttle trucks that move cheese from the bulk plants to the cutting plants and butter and all that kind of stuff. All the shuttle trucks are on vegetable oil. Then that first time that we did it, there was at least six or eight individual farmers that we converted all of our tractors around in straight vegetable oil. And since then, we've converted a truck and a, a personal vehicle to run in straight vegetable oil. It bypasses the need to use some of the energy that's embodied in vegetable oils in order to convert it into diesel fuel because the number of calories that are available for explosion and traction are reduced when you convert it into diesel fuel. If you just burn it direct as vegetable oil, you gain more total calories out of that oil without having to chemically convert it first. So I guess that's kind of like a short and long of the what is the oil cartel, and, and it goes back to permaculture design. Let's design from reality. How much fuel do you use? So how much fuel do you need? How many gallons of oil can you produce per acre? And what's neat about how we're doing it is we're not taking food out of the human food supply. We're not taking corn that could have fed people. We're taking oil crops that are usually pressed for oil that are used to cook food for the human food supply. And then we're actually recycling that oil, not from our local greasy spoon down the road, but from the factories that have hundreds of thousands of gallons of it, they bring in train car loads of the stuff 
on a weekly basis, we're talking about a real-scale fuel system that's ecologically sustainable and economically profitable. And it all goes back to the idea of let's be real and let's use permaculture in a way that works in reality. Real-world permaculture for farmers. Real-world permaculture for everybody. Let's do this for real. And I'm thinking about how I could apply that in Pennsylvania in a way that gets me to rethink about the ethics and the principles to build the on-the-ground techniques that's not an herb spiral, that's not Hugo culture, unless it's appropriate for that space, for the actual issues that are here. Farmers in Pennsylvania are being encouraged to install riparian buffers because of the total maximum daily load for part of the Chesapeake Bay plan to reduce the amount of runoff and pollutants that make it to the bay. But by taking that land out of production, then they lose some of their income. That's a 100% perfect restoration agriculture solution ready to happen. I think that is a fact. We need riparian buffers to prevent the total daily load going to the Chesapeake Bay. Absolutely. Well, let's take those fields out of corn and beans, which are actually destructive to the environment, and let's put them into, for example, hazelnut and walnut, black walnut. We'll grow perfectly fine in riparian buffers. Now we've got a three-dimensional system with walnut over the top, hazelnut down low. Also in that row, let's throw in some cherries and plums, some peaches. Let's throw in some grapes. Let's throw some raspberries and currants. There's more dollars coming out of that riparian zone starting from year one if you do a restoration agriculture system than you ever would have got out of corn. So, yeah, let's, let's stop the conversation. Let's take it out of production. No, we're not taking it out of production. We're going to put it into a more profitable production. However, you, Farmer Joe, you want to put in these many feet of raspberries. There's not a roadside stand in the world or a farmer's market in the world that can sell those many raspberries. But guess what? If you get a straddle harvester and if you have four acres of raspberries in a straddle harvester, uh, four acres of raspberries will justify the expense of a straddle harvester. Now you have what's called a business. So you have a riparian buffer and you've planted it. Let's just use raspberry and hazelnut for two little crops. You've got enough of a quantity now that you can justify the equipment, the processing, individual quick frozen for the raspberries. It goes off to New York City. New York City can eat raspberries till the cows come home. And you can keep them stored at 20 below zero perfectly for a year. You can you know, meter them out every single season of the year, beautiful raspberries. And the hazelnuts, you'll probably want you know, 120 acres of hazelnuts in order to justify the equipment. So that may mean more than one farmer. So now neighbors actually have to get along with each other and then invest in equipment together. And then now what we've done is we've increased productivity, increased the amount of food available to the human food supply, and accomplished ecological restoration and cleaned up the Chesapeake Bay. Because to think of it as taking land out of production and, you know, woe to these farmers, this is their big problem, that's the wrong side of the equation. Let's go to the other side of the equation and think of the opportunity. And there are all kinds of places in there where we can apply these other models, such as whole farm planning, to help farmers meet their long-term needs for what they want to accomplish with the farm, whether that's as commodity prices fluctuate, they need to increase their income, or whether they want to have a farm that is productive for their children down the line or transition to something else. There are all these different ways that we can bring that to a farmer and meet them where they're at and make it happen and get their buy-in in the process. And hedging your bets in that if everything is either corn or beans, you know, you're based on two markets. So let's throw hazelnuts and raspberries just for two. How about hazelnuts, raspberries, and grapes? There's three perfect riparian zone plants. We'll have a perennial ground cover, 
180 feet from every single stream and will increase the total dollars coming off your acres. It will kick the pants out of corn and beans any day of the week. And here in Pennsylvania, we have one of the best freshwater research groups, I believe, in the world through the Stroud Water Research Institute. And, you know, I've interviewed their director before. That's someone here who we can go to and have those conversations with and get their publicly available research that reinforces what it is that we're doing and helps not only the farmers and science, but also permaculture. And then what we do is we go ahead and uh, you collaborate with other universities who are doing research on this type of permaculture and start doing your research and do a case study, a conversion from this way of doing agriculture to a restoration agriculture way of doing agriculture. And I'm not going to say one is better than the other. What I'm saying is do the research. Let's find out the real differences and let's describe those differences. And let's leave concepts like good or better out of it. Let's find out what's really happening first. If we have a cornfield that goes right up to the creek bank and they're applying, you know, atrazine and princep and prowl and, you know, all the tillage, roundup and genetically modified crops, what, you know, what on earth, all the phosphorus going in the stream, let's measure that. For real, what's going into the stream? Well, now let's plant a woody perennial polyculture with hazel, just hazelnuts, grapes, and raspberries like we've been talking about, and walnut is an overstory for a long-term crop. Now let's measure the difference and describe the actual factual difference instead of making value judgments and getting people all pissy and attitudinal. Let's actually measure this. Is there a difference? Let's find out. That's all I ask. Just let's find out. I know what your answers are going to be, though. I know what the answers are going to be because I've experienced them in my life. The farmer's going to make more money. There's going to be more food for human beings, and the environment's going to be cleaner. My place and the direction that I'm going for my specialty is as an educator, but I could use that role to connect with the local school system so that when the high school biology class is doing their stream studies, that they could be doing that on a stream that goes through farmland that is being tended by one of the schools locally that works with our land-grant university for extension work. I'm looking at that web of how... I'm just thinking about how my place and role can be one of those connecting points within the web and all these connections to allow that research to happen and engage so many different people in a functional way. For real. As I said, as we started this third round of conversation, our discussion today has changed my life. So again, thank you. (laughs) And once again, I apologize. (laughs) But that's what I intend to do, so don't worry about it. The next round of questions that I have comes from Matt Winters and about key line design. And he was wondering, what place does key line design have on a small-scale site? Key line design has a, a place to play on all size sites, whether you're dealing with a 15-foot plot in the front of your apartment in the city or a 15,000-acre ranch somewhere in, in, the, in the west. The long and short of it is... What we're striving to accomplish with keyline design is optimizing the distribution of rainfall as it falls on the land. When rain falls anywhere, whether it's in the flatland of central Illinois or in the hill country of Pennsylvania, the shape of the land makes that water move to the valleys. It concentrates. It becomes deeper. It starts to move. It becomes faster. It becomes erosive, and it goes away. An inch of rain that falls in Pennsylvania, the deep hills of Pennsylvania, the inch that landed on the ridge doesn't actually stay on the ridge. It goes down to the valley. So the inch down in the valley 
is the original inch plus all of the inches that came from the ridge. So the ridges end, end up being drier, the valleys end up being wetter. Whether you're dealing with 15-foot diameter circle or 15,000 acres, like I said, the idea and the goal with keyline design is to even out that water distribution across the landscape. So with simple earth-moving techniques, or in some cases not even moving the earth, but just uh, slicing the earth with a yeoman's plow or a subsoiler, we get the water to spread from high in the landscape at the valleys and slowly move towards the ridges downhill. We can't make water move uphill, but we make it move downhill from the highest valleys to the, uh, to the ridges. So as small as you want, as big as you want. I believe that kind of gets at the next three questions that Matt had. Do you mind if I kind of bundle them together? Go for it. Is there a minimum size of a site where it makes sense to go from swales to incorporating key line? Well, I would use key line, just, just stop right there. I would use key line design principles as the way to design your system. Then all of a sudden, once you lay out, you know, let's actually get out there with an A-frame or a laser level and figure out what this land is actually shaped like, now we make a decision, do we use swales or do we not use swales? Because you may not want or need to use swales. Need, I don't know if there ever really is a place for that word with swales. These are all choices. How our world is uh, set up is that we human beings are making management decisions all the time. If you choose to use swales as part of your management strategy, understand what is the big picture, what is the pattern, why are you using them, what goals are you attempting to accomplish, what feedback mechanism do you have in place to let you know whether you're accomplishing those goals or not, and then how will you redesign if you're not accomplishing your management objectives. And so you may or may not choose to use swales. Some places where the uh, land is uh, extraordinarily flat, really uh, shallow landscapes that are combined with sandy soils, it's really a stretch whether you need to use any kind of swales at all. If you are on a situation like that with really shallow hills, flat land, and sandy soils, but you're in the north where the ground actually freezes, I do recommend swales because quite often you'll end up with at least a few rain on snow events in the late winter, or at least you'll have a lot of snow melting, and that just shaping the tillage pattern according to the key line pattern won't really be enough to capture and spread that water, so you will have lost a lot of the snow resource. The way these questions are asked are perfect because these are, these are wonderful little razor-sharp, very specific questions that have a million different answers depending on the context. So go to his next question. We'll fill it out some more. Yep. Is there such a thing as small-scale key line or... Does it all depend on topography? Well, key line design system is based on topography. It is. And so small scale, how small do you want to get? You want to do a flower pot? You can absolutely key line a flower pot. Not a problem. Easy. You know, four inch flower pot. It applies from the smallest of the small to the biggest of the big. And it is based on the actual topography. You know, whatever the shape of the land is. See, that is actually the difference between key line design and a lot of other different methodologies is with key line design is we actually go out there and we actually measure the actual planet, what it actually does. We can start in the house with our GPS and our, our aerial photos and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, all of our technology is only so good. That just gives us a basic idea of where to start and how to design the system. Then when we get out on the actual planet, 
the actual planet is not what your GPS says or what your Google Maps says, then we start surveying, we have to solve the problems on the ground. The actual topography of the land actually tells us how we will design the system. We don't design a system like a landscape architect might. We don't design a system and then apply it to the world. We go to the planet itself and allow the uh, pattern to reveal itself to us. And then we fit within that pattern and use it for our farming or gardening activities. Do you have any other thoughts on Keyline before we move to the next series of questions? Well, the only thought I would have on Keyline design is no matter where we go on this planet, there are plants that live with every single mineral and nutrient deficiency that we could possibly ever come up with. There are plants that are adapted and evolved to survive that. The one thing that we have not found is we have not found any plants really that can survive without water. Water is absolutely critical, absolutely key. Folks in more arid and brittle environments know this for sure. Like if, if you don't have your water resource managed, give up. Don't even think about doing this. Those of you who live in areas that have extraordinarily wet spots, you know, you might have extraordinarily wet spots simply because the uplands have not been managed according to Keyline. Because if we take that water that's down in your wetland and move it up to the headlands, your wet spots might be drier. And so everywhere that we go, we want to optimize the relationship between the water resource and the planet's surface so that our plants can all have adequate access to the water that's appropriate to that particular region. California and Nevada is going to be different than the New England and the Deep South, but all systems should have water that's optimized for that site and for the species that thrive on those sites. That, again, speaks to an earlier part of our conversation about the mud oven and the herb spirals, that we really have to be applying the principles of permaculture in order to get to the actual techniques as practitioners, that we can't just say, well, I want this, so it has to go there, or trying to inflict ourselves somewhere. Right, exactly right. Yeah, and there will be places that all of a sudden it's like, well, guess what? I wanted this, but, well, you know, it would be appropriate that I don't do this because the site told me that it's really not appropriate. I don't care if you can modify the microclimate so much that you can grow bananas up in the Colorado Rockies, and I know folks who are growing bananas in the Colorado Rockies, but at what extent? You know, you have this critically threatened, endangered crop that absolutely depends on all of these artificialities that you created for it, why not plant the stuff that grows there really, really well all by itself? How about pinions? How about chestnut instead of gambel oak? You know, there's, there, there's plants everywhere that will sustain us. We don't need to do stuff for show and tell because it's cool or because we can. Let's just do the stuff that's really easy, effortless, flawless, and it'll work for us for a long, long, long time to come. I'm teaching my first full PDC, and I just gave my students the outline for their final design project, and I just gave them a list of like 30 questions just to kind of allow them to brainstorm over. And one of them was, is there anything in your design that you wanted to have and put there and then tried to justify the permaculture to allow for it? <laughs> well, that's the thing. We can allow for anything. We can. We really can. But I think what would be most prudent is for us to understand that these are choices that we have made and that we have to live with our choices. And if you want to have the lowest cost choices with the greatest chance of success and the greatest chance of downstream benefit, go with the stuff that's worked and has proven to work for Zillennia before we ever got here. That stuff will work.
Is it classic? I got a photograph I use in a lot of my presentations, and it is. It's a it's a mud oven that was made in Vermont, and they built this beautiful pedestal out of stone, about four foot high, and then they built the mud oven on top of it. Well, doggone it! Even after they fired the oven full of pizza several times, it rained and it dissolved the mud oven. So there's this big pile. It looks like a big huge dog turd on top of this rock pile. It's like, how is it that a permaculturist could live in a place that's like 90% rock and think that finding clay in the creek corner 75 miles away, digging it up and transporting it over here to our site and then taking the rocks that are in our way anyways, stacking them up and making a mud oven on top, why wouldn't they have built a rock pizza oven? If you're in a place that grows stones, like Vermont, stone pizza oven is appropriate. So the appropriate technique, technology in the appropriate place at the appropriate time, prudently designed based on reality, not on our ideas of what we want. We could justify anything. We can justify anything if we want. Just look at politicians. The last questions, then, come from Jeremy Kenward, and he lives in an area that averages 30 inches of rain a year, but that rainfall is pretty spread out around the year. His first question was, what are your suggestions for water retention in a mostly flat area ranging from a half acre to farm scale? dig holes in the ground you know if it's not a flat area there is no such thing as flat land get out there with a laser level figure out what its actual shape is your piece of land no matter how flat it is has a highest point and it has a lowest point figure out what that shape actually is what the elevations actually are and then design a system to hold the water as high up in the landscape as possible and then move it to the lower spots by gravity, which is entirely feasible. And one of the things that, that I do most of the time here, I don't build dams and ponds as such, because if I make a dam and I elevate water above its natural grade, that's natural ground level, that requires permitting and licensing by engineers. But if I dig a hole in the ground to excavate some fill to fill in a low spot in a road somewhere else on the farm, there's no regulations that tell me that I can't dig a hole in the ground to generate some fill. So I make my pocket ponds below grade. They're holes in the ground. They're not dams elevating water above grade. And so by digging all these holes, pocket ponds, all throughout the landscape that are connected with, you know, measured with your laser level, connected by channels, swales and berms, you can gravity feed and irrigate your whole entire uh, landscape. So one acre of ground, 30 inches, that's, that's almost three feet of water over the whole thing. Now think about this for a second. If your soil is a sandy soil, sandy soil has about 10% pore space. That means empty space between grains of soil. That's actually very, very coarse. If you take 30 inches of rain, on sandy soil that has 10% pore space, that water will actually soak in 300 inches deep. If you have 1% to 2% pore space, like on a clay soil, it'll soak in like thousands of inches deep. That's many, 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 many feet every single year if you're not letting that water go away. And so one of the things that I find fascinating is why is it that we're told that the aquifers take geological eons to recharge, and yet somehow we've gotten poisons, atrazine and nitrates down there in 60 short years. We can recharge the aquifers if 
we do some subtle changes, redesign the surface of our farms so that the water that strikes the land spreads out, has residence time in the landscape so it can actually soak in, not concentrated in valleys, therefore making waterlogged spots, but distributed across the whole entire landscape. So we now have a completely hydrated landscape that uh, now gives us more opportunity for productivity, especially with our, our uh, longer-lived and deeper-rooted trees and shrubs and bushes and vines. So I would dig holes in the ground according to a keyline design layout. And the last question from all this, which... I don't believe that for a minute. Last question? The last question that I received when I asked for questions <laughs> is, what tips do you have for establishing seedlings in areas where you are unable to water daily or weekly? That would be a water management strategy, and it would also depend. Here's a beautiful example. This totally depends on where you're at. If you're in Vermont, for example, on a steep hillside, it's like 90% rock and the other 10% is clay. You get 45 to 50 inches of rain a year. Uh, you basically have a vertical swamp. If you were to dig a depression, it would accumulate too much water. If you put any tree seedlings out there, they would drown. So in a situation like that, or a situation like uh, I've worked with in central Manitoba, where they are uh, about as level as you can get, they only had 18 inches of drop over a mile and a half. It's very flat, and it's perfect blue clay. In order to get any kind of woody plant established, you had to dig a swale. Well, you're right at lake level, so when you dig a swale, it fills full of water, but you needed to dig a swale so you could make a berm, that the berm is now soil that's not totally saturated with water. Now you can get trees established. So in Vermont, you would want to, and in, in that part of Manitoba, you would want to make an elevated mound and plant your trees on top of the mound so they get adequate drainage. Where some places I've worked with in California, Saskatchewan, Africa, where it's bone dry, five inches of rain a year, you would dig a depression and make a mound. Well, the mound is used to shade the depression and then any water that does accumulate now concentrates in the bottom of the depression. You plant your trees in the bottom of that depression. So here we have the same technology, digging a pit and making a mound. In Vermont, you would want to plant on the mound in order to keep the plants dry. In California and Africa, Nevada, you would plant in the pit in order to keep the plants wet. So the same technique will have a different result in a different context, uh, no, matter, no matter where you use it. So where is this person from that asked the question? They had 30 inches of rain. Was that them? Yes, it is. Put seeds in the ground. Seeds in the ground. Walk away. And the ones that don't survive, you're not interested in anyways. 30 inches of rain, you can grow anything. If, if they don't make it because of your water distribution, I know it's places I work in Oklahoma, they get like 45, 50 inches of rain a year, and they remember both storms when it happened. And the rest of the year, it's like a million degrees. It's the Arizona desert heat. It's amazing. So in that situation, that's probably not enough to do a total ignore it. But if you got 30 inches of rain evenly spaced throughout the year, seeds in the ground, walk away. The Mark Shepard version of do-nothing gardening? That's right. Stunned, sheer, total, utter neglect. And now I have to qualify that. You can do more than total, utter neglect, and that's your choice. The sheer, total, utter neglect will work no matter where you are on this planet. However, the harsher your climate is, the colder the cold, the hotter the hot, the drier the dry, the wetter the wet, the more likely you are to lose a higher percentage of the plants that you actually put in the ground. If you have, like this guy, the 30 inches of rain evenly spread throughout the year, he's got the highest chance of succeeding with sheer total utter neglect. 
because it's just it's just a moderate, nice climate, plenty of water, everything's fine. So you may choose to do more, and that's okay. It's your choice. And again, we need to know the area that we're working with, the plants that we have available, in order to appropriately apply these techniques. Correct. The context is everything. Well, that actually covers all the questions that we have. Do you have any last thoughts before we bring our third round of conversation to a close? Really, the only, uh, the only comments that I would want to make are, are comments of a little bit of encouragement, but with goading behind it, and if the goading doesn't work, then a cattle prod and a gorilla bite in the butt, is that, come on, people, we know what's right, we know what needs to happen, and it's time to stop fooling around. It's time to really produce earth care, really produce people care, and to really create some kind of equitable systems. And in order to do that, you may feel it's appropriate to totally walk away from this system. But if you're going to walk away from this one, I insist that starting today, you have a replacement system in place. And now it is time for all of us to do a radical 100% redesign of everything in our lives, from where we get our food, where we get our fuel, where we get our energy, where we get our clothing, how we exchange goods and services between and among people. And 100% of all of that has to be from permanent perennial ecosystems instead of extractive linear annual ecosystems. And they have to be from socially just and economically just systems for real. No more screwing around because the work that needs to be done on this planet is way bigger than any of us can do alone. And the only reason why it might seem overwhelming is because there's just too many of us that aren't carrying our own weight. So what I'm here to do is I'm here to, to stand behind and, and support anybody who actually wants to stand up, pick up, and carry their own load, and I'm going to help you every step of the way. And those of you who aren't going to be picking up your own load and carrying it along with us and helping every step of the way, I'm going to be bothering you to the end of your days because we need your help and you know it. So stand tall and proud, bend with the wind, let's withstand the test of time and make something real. Well, sir, we've spent three hours together today recording these different pieces. And I just want to thank you for that, as well as your honesty and candor, and allowing me an opportunity to have this dialogue and put it out into the world. I'm sure that it's going to reach a lot of people. I'm hoping that they'll take, and I hope that they'll take your words as the call to action that it needs to be for them to get out and do the work that we talk about. And if people don't take it the way that it is meant to be taken, and of encouragement and inspiration, eh, let it go. Forget about it. You've got better things to waste your time on. You don't need to get out your bundies in a bunch about, you know, how pathetic we are or how this ain't going to work. Don't worry about it. We're not talking to you. We're interested in the ones who are inspired, motivated, and going to make things happen. And we're going to have a lot of fun doing it, too. And that was Mark Shepard. I enjoyed these conversations because of the different voice and perspective that Mark brought to the table. These really expanded my thoughts on how we can practice permaculture in many different ways, underneath the same umbrella. Mark focuses on large-scale agricultural restoration. I look at my own work, and it's really as a communicator, and in the interview process, to share information with the world. Yet we're both practicing permaculture in our own ways. Where do you see your niche in the permaculture community? Where do you fit into this big puzzle of creating a better world? Is there any way I can help you? I'd love to hear from you. Give me a call, 717-827-6266, or send me an email, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com. You can also join in the discussions at facebook.com slash thepermaculturepodcast, 
or follow the show on Twitter where I am at PermacultureCST. Until the next time, spend each day making the world a more abundant place for all life by taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.